praise team. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 11. For those of you who do not have them, uh, the words will be on the screen as always. Um, we're going to be reading from verses 1 through 15 together. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Uh, and for those of you who uh, were not able to join us last week, uh, we're in the midst of our Advent series of understanding what our Christmas expectations are. And so we read this about John the Baptist. So um, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. And when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And now when John, John the Baptist, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness and see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who, hear, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, are not, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and jump into this text. Father, as we await your coming this Advent season, we pray that indeed you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And that indeed we would know who we're expecting and to help us to deal with these expectations properly and that you would indeed um, yeah, work in our hearts and in this Christmas Advent season that we would indeed be awaiting you and nothing else and that all the other things would be blessings because you are here and that we would not forget about who you are and why you've come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I forgot, we forgot to light the Advent candles before this. So we're going to ask Ashley to come uh, and light these candles for us. And so, Ashley, if you would come and light these really quickly. Light the first one, and then light the one on the left, if you can. Do you know how to work it? you got to press that button first. Press this button. We always end up doing joint lightings. Oh, my goodness. Don't pull my candles here. Thank you. <laughs> you guys love to clap. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so in a surprising turn of events, if you were here last week, John the Baptist, the one that we discussed last week, who had such high expectations of Jesus and therefore Christmas, he says one of the more shocking and kind of painful questions that I think Jesus hears in his entire lifetime here on earth. And this is the question. He says to Jesus directly, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Uh, there's a movie, and I can't remember which one it was, but as I was uh, reading this, it reminded me of this movie that I was watching, and basically in this movie, it's a, I think it was, I think it's like Friday, the th Friday, or like one of those movies, but anyways, one of the characters looks at the guy, and he says straight to him, he goes, so is you or ain't you the one we were hoping for? And that's kind of the question, right, that John the Baptist is asking, are you it or are you not? I have 
to know. And if you hear the question, you can hear the disappointment. You can hear the uh, hurt and the pain. Because John, as we have understood before, is Jesus' cousin, earthly cousin. John born a couple months before with Jesus. And as cousins, they probably spent a lot of time together. And we can kind of infer this because uh, their mothers were very, very close. There's a lot of things that happened before their birthday was foretelling and all these kind of things. And so they're very, very close to each other. And then John, later on in his life, understood who Jesus was supposed to be. And we talked about it last week, that he's the coming Messiah. He's the king. He's God himself bringing the kingdom, and he's doing all these things, right? And remember, John had the ultimate privilege of being the prophet of all the prophets who got to actually announce to the world that God was here. John says things like, make way for Yahweh. Or he says, repent, so the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He even says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so to think that this guy, John the Baptist, who says these crazy and amazing things about Jesus, to turn face and then get to a place and basically looks right at Jesus after he does a lot of things and goes, is you or ain't you? Because if you ain't, then I got to go look somewhere else because my job is to find the one that is to come. And so this question, kind of in the middle of Matthew here in chapter 11, makes us kind of think about a couple of other questions, you know, that, that are attached to this question, right? It makes us think like, wait, what's going on? Why did John so quickly turn on Jesus? And not just turn on him, why so strong? Why did he all of a sudden turn about face and then have this attitude where like Jesus isn't who he thought he was? And then all of a sudden be so disappointed to the fact that he would say this publicly. And then also the question we have to ask is, how does Jesus respond? Because I think if it were any of us, if any of our family members or our cousins or people that we love looked at us and be like, you're not who I thought you were, we'd be very hurt and disappointed and we'd have to respond in such a way. So what, what, what happened and how does Jesus respond indeed? How does this help us figure out what Advent is and how to be this Advent season? So let me just give you some background. Before Jesus begins his ministry, John's ministry as a prophet is thriving. He's preaching on the shores of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, and thousands of people are flocking to hear him preach. And then all of a sudden, as expected, Jesus appears, and then, and then everyone starts to go from John the Baptist to Jesus to hear him preach. And if you think that that's the reason why, it isn't, because John is quoted as saying, now this joy of mine has been made full. So he loved the fact that people were going from him to Jesus because he thought Jesus was the mightier one where he can't untie his sandals and all that kind of stuff. So he expected this thing. But in his joy of expecting what Jesus is supposed to be and how this world is going to be, John started doing some very interesting things. There was a king in that time, as many of you know the nativity story, by the name of Herod. And Herod was a very interesting fellow. And Herod at this time took on kind of this thing and he decided that his wife wasn't good enough for him. So he decided to steal his brother's wife and then take her to be his own. Not cool by any means. John, because of the fact that Jesus, God himself had come and that his kingdom was coming and all these things, decided, you know what, this is not good. And so then John, what he decided to do is to speak out against sins like this. So he called out King Herod and said, you, my sir, are doing a very terrible thing. And he started calling out all the people of all the wrongdoings that they were because he was confident that Jesus was going to come and change everything the way that he expected. And then, as you might guess, Herod was not so happy about some prophet in the wilderness calling him out about the things that he was doing. And so he imprisoned John. He threw him into prison. And so John, while in prison, then starts to hear about what Jesus is doing while he's in prison. And here's what he hears, and here's what he, Jesus tells him and what we know of Jesus doing. And you've heard it. It says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
I don't know about you, but doesn't that sound pretty fantastic as to what any preacher, any person, Jesus would be doing? Blind, you know, seeing again, lame walking again, deaf hearing again, and even the dead being raised to life? But then you have to wonder, what's John's problem? What's going on? And this is where expectations, like we talked about last week, and we'll continue to talk about today, is really, really important. I said last week that it's often not what we experience, but how those experiences differ from what we expected that make us do or feel what we do and or feel. So remember the expectations that John had last week as we covered them? He, he expects to, in Jesus, meet God. Check. He did that. He expects to see God's kingdom come. Check. See that. The blind, the see, the lame walk, and the deaf, are, uh, the deaf hear, and the, lame, uh, the dead arise. Uh, those are all king, God's kingdom come to life, as it's told in the prophecies. And then thirdly, he expected to be baptized in fire and the Holy Spirit. And this is where the problem is. Because here's what John expected in this very thing, being baptized by the Holy Spirit and the fire. And let me just give it to you very simply. As a master of the prophets and the scriptures, John understood what this meant, or he thought he understood it anyways. And what he expected to find was two things. And the prophets always said that when the Messiah comes, two things or things were going to happen. And there was all this language, one, about the Holy Spirit coming. And the Holy Spirit to the prophets like Isaiah and all the others, right? The idea of the Holy Spirit is the gift that comes when the new age is here. So in essence, when like everything changes and the heavens and the earth are all new and everything like that, then the Holy Spirit was going to come outpour and we were going to have all this amazing stuff and life was going to be completely different. But then the other part that he expected along with the Holy Spirit was a thing called the purification by fire. The prophets always had this way of speaking about when God comes again, that things were going to be purified by fire. Basically, it was, they were saying, you know what, God is going to come, fire is going to come, and everyone who's not doing well is going to get judged and pretty much get burnt to crisp, kind of an idea. And so John expected very clearly that when Jesus coming as God and his, bringing his kingdom, then he expected very clearly that one, you would get the fire and the unrighteous would get kind of burned up in it. Sorry for the language, but that's kind of what expected. And then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the ones that were left who withstood the test of the fire. Follow? So when Jesus came, basically what he was thinking is that Jesus was going to wipe out all the unrighteous people and be rid of them. And then what you had left were the righteous, good, God-following, law-following, law-abiding people, and then God was going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. But then what he found was not what he expected. And he thought that they were going to happen at the same time. But then what he, again, understood and experienced is not what he expected. And if you think these expectations are kind of crazy, you can hear it in the text we read last week in Matthew chapter 3. In the very last portion that we didn't really cover last week, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And then he will gather his wheat into the barn, the people, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So maybe you've ever had, you've had these expectations, whether in, in your classes or in your schools or whatever, and you just thought, you know what, if we could get just rid of these terrible people, then the world would just be a much better place, right? If we could just get rid of men, then we wouldn't have any issues. If you've ever done a group project, maybe you thought that way, if we could just get rid of that person and that person and replace them with that person and that person, then we'd be all good because they do their work and, and these people are lazy bums and all that kind of stuff. That's what John expected, essentially. To get rid of the unrighteous and be only left with those who stood the test of the fire and then to pour out the Holy Spirit. He expected people who would have U-turned, as he said, repented, and then known that the kingdom is here. 
And so when all the judgment and the purifying and the fire and all this happened, then the Messiah would pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit. But John was severely disappointed and upset because rather than the fire coming first, what he saw was the Holy Spirit coming first. And to make things even worse, the Holy Spirit came as he saw but he didn't see any fire at all. There was no purging, there was no, ter- there was no purifying, no destroying, no doing anything like that, and John didn't like it. So on one hand, theologically, or kind of based on scripture, he had these ideas, right? And for us, I think maybe we think, you know, like we have these ideas of what, you know, Christians are supposed to be, or maybe if you meet a Christian, that happens a lot. Like you, someone says, oh, you know, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be A, B, C, because the Bible says A, B, C, and then maybe you don't get what it is. And so theologically or kind of idealistically, you are disappointed about what you don't get. But way more than that, I think this is for us the really the thing that we have to look at is as much as John's theological expectations or what he expected people or things to be as he understood in Scripture didn't happen, the real reason he was upset, I suggest, if set enough to ask Jesus, like, are you or are you not who we're waiting for? is that his personal expectations were more severely hurt than his theological ones. And here's why. John, at the time, when he says this, he's in prison. And I hope none of you ever will experience ever being in prison. And I hope none of you will know any loved ones that will indeed be in prison. But prison is not a fun place. But he's in prison, as I said, because he was calling out unrepentant sinners, particularly King Herod, for the things that they had done, and saying, if you don't shape up, there's going to be some purifying fire going on, and you're not going to be around very much longer, so you better shape up, that type of thing. But what he found as he did so was that these unrepentant sinners were still chilling and having a good time while he was sitting in prison, and he didn't like it. So King Herod and his cheating, stealing his brother's wife self was sitting there right above him while he was sitting in the prison of King Herod, partying and doing all these things and having a grand old time, it seemed. And John was like, why am I sitting in prison even though I'm the one who's doing good? I'm God's prophet. I'm the one who's doing all these things. And here I am, rotting in prison. Here are all those terrible, stinking people who don't do anything right, and they're out there just having a great old time. And here's what made it even worse than that. Jesus was going around spending time with the people he thought that deserved purification, purging, and destroying. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the bunch. So here's the dynamic. John thought that when Jesus came, Jesus was going to get rid of all the unrepentant sinners, all the terrible people. And he's going to purge them all, they're going to be purified fire, there's going to be the, the clearing of the threshing floor, and they're going to be burnt up and all this kind of stuff. And then after that happened, then the God was going to pour out the Holy Spirit, and life was going to be grand, and it was going to be awesome, and everything was going to be different. But then, so then he took that sign, and all of a sudden he started calling out all the bad people and saying, oh, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this, no good, no good, no good, you better hurry up and shape up, repent. And then because of that, he got thrown in jail. But then in jail, I think he was thinking that the unrepentant sinners were going to get slowly, or maybe all of a sudden at the same time, whichever one it is, get purged by the fires, but he wasn't. And instead, what he found out was that the people Jesus was healing was those very unrepentant, terrible, unrighteous people that he was calling out. And instead of the people that he thought were going to make it, he was showing, Jesus was showing love and spending time with, eating with, and giving mercy to the people he thought deserved punishment and judgment. And on top of that, if we're being honest, I think John expected Jesus to get him out of prison but he was just still sitting there in prison. No sign of help coming his way at 
all. You can almost hear it in John's question. Like, are you the Savior and King whose arrival I gave everything in my life to announce and proclaim? Because if you are, then why am I sitting in jail while the ones who sin are out there having fun or living their life? See, at the core, John was upset because Jesus was freeing sinners all the while he, what he thought was righteous, was in prison. And if we're being honest, we can relate to this, can't we? Because most of you, when you come to church or if you listen to sermons or if you decide to follow Jesus, most of you have expectations of what this life is supposed to be like. You have expectations that this life is going to be maybe good and happy and joyful. Maybe some of you have expectations that if you follow God or if you're a Christian or if you do these things, go to retreat, pray, read your Bible, give offering, whatever it is those things are, then that you will be blessed with all these blessings and your life will be great and everything will flow smoothly. But unfortunately, oftentimes what we experience and what we find is that though we are trying to do well and though we are trying to do good and though we're trying to live life righteously, our life doesn't go the way that we expect. And then to make it all worse, to add insult to injury, you look at the people who are quote-unquote bad and not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, and it seems like they have everything that you want and you don't have anything that they have. And so you get really, really, really pissed. See, this is what's happening to John. And it's because of his expectations. Here's what my professor says about this very dynamic. He says, such disappointments usually go hand in hand. Behind nearly all, not all, but nearly all, theological anguish is personal hurt. Beneath many of the intense religious controversies lie deep emotional wounds touched by the religious issues. So we wrestle with the affirmation, our God reigns. Not because there's no evidence that God reigns, but because our personal histories are not going the way we think they should if indeed God reigns. We argue about whether or not Jesus still heals in miraculous ways, not because there's no evidence of such healing, but because he has not healed our loved ones in such miraculous ways. We are offended by exuberant worshipers who promise and say, Jesus can give you joy, not because we fail to see joy in their life, but because we are not presently experiencing the joy. Is you or ain't you? Because I got to know. And if we're being honest, again, you and I have probably asked this question or these types of questions once or twice, if not many more. Some of us have asked them and maybe gotten over them and said, you know what, that's not a big deal. Others of you in here probably have asked those questions and then moved on to the next logical place, which is to say, you know what, God's not answering me or God's not doing jack, and so you know what, I'm done. I'm out. God surely must not be real. He surely must not be loving. He isn't trustworthy and all these other things. So why do I do any of the things that I do? Have you ever prayed for a loved one that was sick and had that loved one not get healed? This is how you feel. If any of your parents have lost a job and then your life turns topsy-turvy and you pray and you hope that your dad or your mom gets a job again and makes things better and they don't, then this is how you feel. Or you pray for a relationship, either your parents or your own or things like that, and you pray for it and you hope and you do all these things and you pray that it gets better and it doesn't, then this is how you feel. Or if you're depressed or hurt or angry and you ask God to relieve the pain and make you feel better and it doesn't, it just seems to keep going on and on and on and on, this is how you feel. 
and you want to ask, God, are you or are you not the God you say you are? Because right now it doesn't seem like it, which means I got to go look somewhere else. And indeed, we shall look and look we will. And of course, as Jesus always does, he answers. But not the way we expect, but the way that only he can answer. And he answers both theologically and personally, which I love. So first, the theological answer. John says, Jesus tells to John, he says, you know what, look, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are uh, risen. But we have to note here that this isn't anything new. John already knew all this. This was the very thing that he was pissed off about, essentially. But Jesus puts it in such a way by quoting Isaiah, who John the Baptist knew really, really well, and he quotes Isaiah in such a way where John hears what's going on. See, Isaiah 34, 35, which John quotes, says this, Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, and recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. He's telling John what he told everybody else would happen. And what he's basically telling John is saying, I'm doing exactly what Isaiah said I would do. People are being freed and made whole. But John, the thing that you don't like is the people I've chosen to free and make whole. It's kind of like that age-old homeless issue that we deal with all the time. We see a homeless person out on the street, and the first thing we think is not whether they need help, is whether they deserve the help. Basically, what Jesus is doing is telling John, you knew I was coming, you knew what I was going to do, and indeed I'm doing what I was supposed to do, but there's something you didn't know about my coming, in the sense that I will come again. This is not the end, this is not it. This is the beginning of the end, if you want to call it that. I will indeed come again. That's when everything you expected will indeed happen exactly the way you expected, but you're going to have to wait. Because my coming again doesn't really mean a whole lot if people are not whole and free. So the purge, the fire, and all this stuff, it'll happen. And Jesus talked about it a lot of other times. Maybe you, maybe you uh, learned it today in the Lazarus and the Rich Man story. But it'll happen much more slowly than we expect. So theologically, Jesus answers the question. And then he gets to the personal one, which is really where Jesus wants to hit, right? Because that's the heart of the issue. And he says this, right after he tells them that the blind receive sight and on and so forth, he said in verse 6, Blessed is he who does not take offense, or, or who does not take offense at me. That word to take offense, another translation is uh, translated stumble, is the Greek word skandalon, which is, as you can hear it, scandal. Basically, Jesus is saying, blessed are the ones who are not scandalized by me, who are not shocked and subverted by me. And Jesus is going right at the heart of thing. He's saying this, John, I get it, I get it. I know you're disappointed. I know you're hurt. Knowing what you expected, it's easy to see why you'd be so disappointed and hurt by all the things that I'm doing. But John, you got to trust me because I am God. I am the Messiah. I am everything you hoped for. But my ways and my timing are not what you expected. But I know what you've been preaching, John. I know what you've been saying, And I know that indeed you said that I will be ridding the world of sin, hurt, pain, violence, oppression, and death. And I will, but just stay with me. I know what I'm doing. Let me be God my way. 
And when life isn't going right for us, let's be real, we don't like that answer, do we? Or if you have issues with your parents and you want something that you, you think your parents should give you and you've laid it out and you've even explained it really well and you've kept calm and you haven't even you know, gone crazy and thrown a fit and then all of a sudden your parents say, no. And you're like, why? And be like, because you have to wait. And you're like, I don't understand why. Why do we have to wait? I all these things. And they go, no, be patient. I say, this, I say this to my kids all the time. I am your father. You are my child. You will have to let me be what I'm supposed to be and you do what you're supposed to do. But we don't like this answer. Why? Because it's not satisfactory. It's not what we want. It's not what we think we should hear. But in truth, it's the only answer that Jesus can give. And in greater truth, it's the only answer in the end that is really right and satisfactory. Let me explain. Okay? What Jesus is asking us to do is something that's very difficult. He's asking us to lay aside our expectations and hopes of what we hope and what we want our lives to be and how Jesus is supposed to be in that life. However you expect it to be. Maybe you expect Jesus to be just some side component, some side piece thing that you can get to or use or have whenever you need it. Maybe you expect Jesus to be everything. Maybe you expect Jesus to make your world completely better and get rid of all the, uh, of the muck and all the pain and all the hurt and just make you glorious and happy and blessed and all these things. Maybe that's what you have. But Jesus is asking us to lay aside how we, how we think and how we imagine and how we expected things to be and how we expected him to be. And also, Jesus is us, asking us to lay aside how we would do things if we indeed were God. And of course, it's hard. Why? Because we have these expectations and these hopes. And trusting anything otherwise we think is really stupid or difficult. But imagine this with me, okay? Imagine the world as it is, and there's a lot of pain and sin and hurt and, and anguish and depression and anxiety and all these things in the world, right? Imagine if Jesus got rid of all the hurt and the pain and the quote-unquote terrible in the world. Then what? Tell me. Is everything good? Is everything peachy, cool, just the way you want it? Is everything really going well? In truth, even if Jesus were to at this moment get rid of everything that's wrong in your life, the thing that we would never have guessed that we needed most and the thing that we really, really need would not have gotten solved at all is that we ourselves are broken and needy. Do you remember the story of the paralytic man that got carried by his friends, right, and then they tore the hole in the roof? Do you remember that story? See, the interesting thing about the story, as we talked about before, is not that Jesus heals, but before he heals and before he says, get up, take your mat, and walk, is that he tells the man, your sins are forgiven, and we talked about this before. Like, why bring his sins into it, Jesus? Like, he's just a paralytic man trying to walk. But Jesus understands that more than the paralysis, more than being able to walk, is that there's a brokenness and emptiness in our hearts that Jesus needs to fill first before he can get rid of any of the stuff. Because if we are not whole, then is it even really worth it? No, because the physical and even all these other things, while they're good, they don't make us whole. Only God See, if our, life wants to, if our life is supposed to be what it's meant to be, then we need to have Jesus fill us in here. We need to have his coming, the Advent, Christmas, indeed be what it's meant to be, to make us whole, to allow us to receive him. See, what would have happened if, John, if Jack, uh, Jesus sorry, took John out of prison? 
Would John have been whole? No, because John would have gotten out of prison and he would have looked at all the unrepentant sinners and been like, you, 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 you all deserve purging and fire. Burn. But is that who Jesus is? See, John needed to be made whole. We all needed to be delivered, not from the prison that he was in and not from our prison, but indeed the emptiness of who we are. And again, I quote from my professor, even if Jesus did immediately remove all the pain, all the sorrow, all the sickness, even if he did indeed give us all that we asked for, we are not fully alive until we are his and until we belong to him. Why? Because we were made by him, but more importantly, for him. And we are not all we are meant to be until we are wholly his. He himself is our wholeness. He himself is our freedom, and he himself is our joy, our peace, our light, and our life. See, what we find is that when we aren't stumbled or scandalized or offended by Jesus, and rather trust him and let him be God, let his way and his time be the thing, then what God is ultimately doing is he's drawing us closer to him and saying, look, come, be. As I asked you last week, what are your expectations this Christmas? What's the fire that hasn't happened yet? What's the thing that you maybe hoped God would get rid of so that your life would be better? What is it that you're hoping to find in God that you haven't found in him yet? Or maybe you have to ask, where is God moving too slowly for your liking? Or maybe perhaps your expectations and hopes have already been foiled and massively disappointed. And because of it, like John, you said, so are you or aren't you? Should I look somewhere else? And you're thinking that right now. You're thinking, why do I come here every week? Why do I listen to this? Why do I do this? What is the point? And maybe some of you in here have even moved past that and said, you know what, God's not worth it. I'm just sitting here because I have to. Because my mom makes me, my dad makes me. And if we're being honest again, we know how strong and how quick the temptation to look elsewhere indeed is. To look somewhere else than our Savior and God and Lord and indeed to another source of hope, peace, and love. What is that source of hope, peace, and love for you this Christmas? Is it the fact that you're going to have two weeks of no school? Because guess what? School will come back again. Is it that you maybe get to go on vacation and leave all the worries of your home and your family here? Guess what? Those will come back again too when you get back. What is it for you? And this is a real honest and kind of a reflection question, and maybe you don't like this. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Wherever it is that you look to find your peace, joy, comfort. For, for you seniors, maybe it's the fact that you got into the college you wanted, or you have a future and a plan. Maybe for some of you, it's like, you're like, you know what? I got to have me a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Like, I got to get that. Like, I have to have that. If I do, then that will need make everything better. Maybe for some of you, you're like, you know what? I just got to get out of here and get away from my parents and get away from this 
thing that is Houston. And you can replace thing with the appropriate words in your mind. But whatever all those things are, whatever all the accolades and the accomplishment, all the things are in your life that you think aren't going well or whatever they may be, I'm telling you, and you can quote me on this, you can take it to the bank, that you can reach the height of all of those things and you will find yourself sorely disappointed if Jesus isn't the one who fills you. You can get the dream job you've always wanted. You can get the dream dude or gal you've always wanted. Get the house, get the car, get all the things, get the kids, get the family, and everything that you've ever wanted. And it'll indeed sorely disappoint you. Have you ever heard of what midlife crisis? Midlife crisis is for people who are like in their 50s, and they look back at their life and go, holy moly, what have I done with my life? People who suffer midlife crises, interestingly, aren't the ones who are poor and haven't done anything. The people who've had success are the ones who suffer from midlife crisis the most because they look back at their success and go, that's not what I wanted. If it isn't Jesus that's filling us, then indeed, you will not have what it is that you're looking for. So Jesus is calling out to us. He's saying, trust me. I understand your hurt. I understand your confusion. I understand your disappointments. Trust me, for I am the promised one. I am your God, but you have to let me be me on my terms. And before you think that this is terrible news and this is not what you came here to hear today, remember that Christmas, as we sang about just a second ago, Christmas is only the beginning. Christmas is nothing. Christmas doesn't mean anything really in reality unless there's the Good Friday and there's an Easter and there's an Ascension and there's a Second Coming and there's indeed an Apocalypse. Christmas is only the first chapter of this great story. Christmas is where we see the beginning part of the story really round into shape, where we see the Old Testament and everything kind of come into kind of meaning and light. And then we will see the story come to completion in Good Friday, in Easter, when Jesus rises again, goes back to heaven and says, I'm coming back, just you wait. But in the meantime, until he comes, he says, I will baptize you, I will fill you, I will dunk you, I will immerse you, I will overwhelm you, I will soak you in the very life of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go through the fire just yet, I will give that to you first. but only if you let me. As we finish this Christmas, whatever your expectations are, whatever your hopes are, whatever you think this is, and if you think you don't have any, you're kidding yourself. Be honest with them. Be open with them. The challenge for me to you in this Advent season, is to go to God directly. Don't ignore him any longer. You're not doing yourself or anybody else any favors. If you hate being here, then hate being here and say, God, I hate being here because you are not what I thought you were. See, I love John's honesty because he asked it, even though maybe he shouldn't have. And I love Jesus because he doesn't get pissed off and go, oh, John, you questioned me. No, he answers. Did you notice what he said? Later, he goes, there's no one greater than John that's ever been born of a woman. That's basically, there's no greater human being on earth other than John. He praises John even after John boldly and publicly questions him. If that's you, that's my challenge to you this Christmas. Don't let another one pass you by where you think this means nothing. 
deal with the hurt and the pain. Ask him, are you or are you not? Because this is not what I came. This is not what I signed up for. And ask him to answer you. And he indeed will in due time. If you've already given up and you're just here because you have to, then my challenge to you, my prayer to you is that you would open up just a little bit and say, maybe there's something here. And as you deal with these expectations and these questions and these hopes and you realign our expectations and our hopes for this Christmas and on beyond, I encourage you as I invite the praise team up to lead us out in song and worship, I encourage you this prayer that my professor has given to me in light of this. Is that you pray three steps, the beginning, the end, and in the meantime. And I pray that this prayer, this Advent season, particularly going forward, and uh, I will put this prayer uh, up somewhere so you can access it again. Or if you want, you can just kind of come back to this video on YouTube and just kind of replay it for yourself. But I encourage this prayer to you because I think it really helps us to place ourselves in the right place. So as you go and as we pray this, I pray that you would indeed allow yourself and invite Jesus, invite the Spirit to help you to pray if that's where you're at. Or pray it with all of your heart if you need to because you're just like, I can't anymore, I got to pray this. Or wherever it is you're at, that this would indeed be your word. So here, here it is. First, I encourage you to pray the beginning and pray, welcome Lord Jesus. I welcome your coming into the world and so keep then filling me with your Holy Spirit. And I give you full access to all of me, every last bit. Use me for your purposes in this world, because I know you have them. And while you pray the beginning, then also pray the end. Come, Lord Jesus. Come again. We've been in the Revelation series, right? We've been in the apocalypse. That's what we're praying for. He is indeed going to come again. There's a vision of things to come. And the things that are now come again to bring your work to full completion. Bring in the new heavens and the new earth and make your kingdom whole. We need to pray that. Because that's what the Christmas story is about. That indeed that would happen at some time. And then most importantly, I think for all of us sitting here in this time, pray the meantime. And in the meantime, God, help me to trust you. Help me to trust you to be who you are, the way you are, and always in your time. Help me not to stumble over you. I commend this to you this Advent season, that your life would be filled with the fiery life of the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who are going through difficult times and having difficulty with lots of different things, and many of us are at different times, that you would pray this prayer and you would ask God, help me to trust you. Help me to trust that your ways are right. They don't seem right all the time. They don't seem like it's going well, but help me to trust you because you're God and I'm not. And I pray that as you do, that indeed this season of Advent, this Christmas would be life-giving to you. That your heart would reflect the lights you see on the trees. That your heart and your soul would indeed reflect the songs that are on the radio of joy and white and good and Christmas and all these things. In fact, I pray that your joy and your life and your soul and the life of the Spirit would 
ever go way beyond all the bright lights and the gifts and the trees and the songs and everything that you would shine much brighter than all of those things that people would see you and be like, man, what is going on in that heart? That your life would be filled with the fiery life of the Holy Spirit. Take some time to reflect. What is your expectation? What is your hopes? What are you hoping for? What is Jesus doing in you? As you reflect, join us as we sing and finish in worship. Thank you.